0: it's john thanks for listening to the hustle we are a weekly podcast where we track down people who put out great music at one point and maybe we haven't heard from them for a while or maybe they're sort of the guys behind the scenes we want to hear those people's stories we want to find out what they're doing now and this week's guest fits that criteria perfectly his name is martin brammer and he was the lead singer of a band in the 80s called the Kane gang they were part of that sophista pop blue-eyed soul, British alternative movement that was going on in the mid to late '80s. We talk about a lot of those bands here, like Breathe, Danny Wilson, Curiosity Killed the Cat. Kane Gang had a couple of hits in the States. They were way more successful in the UK, but their biggest hit in the States was Motortown, which you're listening to now. That reached number 36 in 1987. I've always wondered whatever happened to the Kane Gang. I love this song and thought, well, let's track down Martin Brammer and see what he's doing. Turns out he is a very successful songwriter in the UK. Songs for primarily UK artists that maybe didn't transpire to the States, but were huge successes over there. So turns out Martin is hugely successful. And I didn't know that because I only really knew about the Kane Gang. In this interview, he, helps me understand what a publishing contract is. That's a term that gets flown around. It's come up before in these podcasts, you hear about it in the music industry, but I didn't really know what that was. What really truly is a publishing deal? Well, Martin breaks it down for me, thankfully. So we get to know some of the behind the scenes business aspect of what it means to be a professional songwriter. I was really excited to talk to him. He's a good guy. He called me from his home in London.
1: Martin Brammer, I would kick these things off with a little story about how I discovered the band or an anecdote or whatever. And I remember very, very specifically the moment that I heard Motortown. In the States, we would have alternative video programs because MTV was so huge, so other channels would try and kind of get in on it. And there was a program on the weekends called Night Tracks. And it would come on from about 10 at night till 2 in the morning. In 1987, I would have been 13, 14 years old. I think I was playing a game by myself or something on the floor in front of the T V with the videos on in the background. And Motor Town coming on and immediately I loved it. But I was confused because you guys were clearly British. Even though I didn't know anything about you, I think I assumed you were British because there was that Sophista pop movement that was going on at the time, right? The bands right. like Breathe and Danny Wilson and Curiosity Killed the Cat yeah, and Low yeah. Monkeys. Yeah. I love that sound still so much. So I knew you were British, but then I was confused because I didn't know what a cane gang was, and Motortown to a to an ignorant American is Detroit or was Detroit, and so because yeah. that's where cars were made back in the day. <laughs> and so I thought, why is this British band that I've never heard of singing about Detroit? I'm so confused here. But I love that song, and it never. I mean, it got it broke the top forty, but it was never so big that it, you would get sick of it. You know because it didn't get played all the time, but it was one of those welcome yeah. songs that when it came on, you're like, yes, I love this, and you turn it up. So let's get some of the boilerplate stuff out of the way first. First of all, mm-hmm. what's a cane gang? Why did you write about Motortown? What is Motortown? Let's start with those, and then i got a million other
2: questions for you. Okay. Well, <laughs> Kane gang came after a, a long, long, long search for a name that, that, that we were happy with, uh, you know probably a 10-year search, you know, since we were little kids. Oh, what should we call that band, you know? The name immediately before the King Gang was The Kings of Cotton. So the Kings
1: which, which of Cotton?
2: The King, Kings of Cotton, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, which was kind of... We were sort of trying to have this kind of oldie Bible belt, some sort of imagery thing going on there. Anyway, okay. we, we we never... we. we you know, we were moderately happy with that, but we also let's, let's. We need a better name. We need a better name. And, and the Kane gang comes about quite simply through, you know, Citizen Kane, in particular, how powerful the the letters of Kane look actually in the movie itself. You mm. you, you may recall that, yeah, when he's uh, on his political campaigning and there's his massive posters with Kane when he's standing at the podium and. We just thought it, 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 it was a very powerful, just the angles of the letters and yeah. all that kind of thing. And obviously, then because we had some sort of relationship with, you know, as we were described at you know various points as being a kind of blue-eyed soul band as well. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the resonance with the, the you know Sam Cooke, Chain Gang, mm-hmm. you know okay, that, okay. that I wondered about that. So that was the origin of the name. Um, okay, as far as Motor Motortown uh, is concerned. The, the lyrics of the song are actually tightly defined. They're, they're very specifically about the area where we we, we grew up in and uh, indeed where we, was, we were still living at, at, uh, at that time in the northeast of England. Most of the jobs in the little town that we came from, we come from a little place called Seam, which is just a population of about 25,000. It's about twenty miles south of Newcastle, and it's about six miles uh, south of a place called Sunderland. People know the British social history, and in in the aftermath of the massive coal miners' strike, all the mines were shut down. That this little town that we lived in, Seam was actually it had three three coal mines in that in that town. It was it was almost the sole source of employment in the town. Subsequent to that, there was then this brave new era, which is what this is about, where they built a car plant for Nissan cars. So the song is singing about, is is referring to as if, it's from quite a, well, this is a very English trait, sort of sarcastic, ironic point of view. Yeah. That this you know, in the middle eight where we're saying it's a miracle, it's a miracle, it's a miracle. Yeah. It's it's it, it's sort of saying, well, what this one car plant is meant to replace, you know, all Got this it. all this jobs and infrastructure and such like, and, yeah. and there's, there's words in the chorus about, you know, they'll work for pennies in Motortown because you're yeah. obviously going to plump this new plant in a place where yeah. where you people can, you know, you
1: can people need jobs.
2: People. But, yeah. 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 Yep. It has okay. to be said that historically, I mean, the car plant has actually been, you know, thirty years later is a fantastic.
3: <laughs> we were oh,
2: possibly wrong. <laughs> it's, it's still there. It is actually a sort of a great. Yeah, I mean, it is. Oh, good. Uh, it's the main <laughs> source. You know, it's a huge source of employment, in, both in itself and sort of ancillary suppliers around and about. And it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a very successful. You know, they make. Oh, great. Okay. So we were the gloomy naysayers. Yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> but some people did get it made in Motor Town. To,
2: to some extent, we were proved to be incorrect in that sense. But, hey, you know.
1: It's good to be wrong in this case, right? <laughs> yeah.
2: Cool.
1: Okay. That blue-eyed soul movement in Britain at the time, even to everything right down to the style. I mean, you know, the, in the video, you got your... Now, I, I, no offense, you you wear a hat a lot, and it's yeah. because I'm sure you, at a young age, were like me, follically challenged.
2: Yeah, we, well, well there was actually a big argument about that the in the video edit. There's there's a bit in the video where there's a big kind of truck goes past us in the car, and actually uh-huh. on the thing, I sort of I I kind of raised my hat, and there was a massive argument with the, the record coming no, don't let him take his hat off yeah. and, you know, people will see that he's actually got no hair. I was going, well, what, did, what does it matter, you know? It was quite yeah, a, yeah. I, it was, yeah. yeah. Well, the meanwhile, days. then,
1: I noticed in your next video, don't look any further, you just let it go.
2: well and you know and the reason for that was because the actually our american label capital records paid for that and and put that video together so and they were wow. totally you know they were coming from a different sort of place so yeah so yes i was freed from the headwear for that <laughs> Free- that video <laughs>
1: that's great yeah so so what was going on in england that was promoting or you know propagating all of this blue eyed soul material and, I mean, the style, the haircuts and the hats and the suspenders, and or I guess you guys call them braces. I used to live in yeah. that one, by the way, briefly. You know, where is this coming from? Are you guys all just listening to a lot of Steely Dan and funk from the 70s? Or what's going on that's motivating well, all this?
2: Well, yeah, you've kind of, to some extent, put, put your finger on it. You know, we were massive Steely Dan fans. In fact, Dave, the guitarist, in the band, funnily enough, has has just been to New York to see a couple of Steely Dan shows that they were doing there. So his keenness for a bit of Steely Dan remains undiminished. Wow. That was part of it. I mean, in latter years, I know when you your opening comments, you you mentioned a bunch of other bands, including Danny Wilson. And actually, you know, years Later, I then you know I became good friends with Gary Clark from Danny Wilson, and yeah, I've got so I've got some insight into you know Gary's musical taste, and of course he was a massive Dan fan. It's actually quite a lot of Scottish Scottish bands. I really liked you know Danny Wilson. I guess it's not Blue Eyed Soul, but yeah. Uh, I mean, Gary's just the most amazing singer. So to this day, I used to write quite regularly with him. Not so much the last few years because actually he was in the oh. he, he lived in L.A. for about six years. Although he's just come back to live in the UK about a year ago, but w- we wrote quite a lot together. And, and that was actually yeah. one of the pleasures of it was just being in the room and listening to him sing. It was just wow. This guy really?
1: well Mary's <laughs> prayer is still I mean it's still it holds up.
3: Every single day she says everything is free. I used to be so careless if I couldn't get less did I have to make this face when I Suddenly the heavens rolled Suddenly the rain came down Suddenly it was washed away Mary that I knew So when you find somebody You can think of me and celebrate I made such a big mistake When I was Mary's brain. So if I say, say
1: Your stuff holds up, I'm not trying to do you know. But, you know, no, not, no, no. I feel like I'm bouncing all over the place, but this, you talking about Gary reminded me. So I'm looking over your credits, and I would never have paired you with Nick Carter of the Backstreet Boys, of all people, but you wrote a couple songs on his first solo album, and so did Gary, right?
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Gary How and I in the world that, does something like that
1: happen? I mean, I, I don't know Nick Carter at all. I You know, he's a little past my time period really but does he have any idea who you are? Why are YouTube guys of all people being brought in to work with Nick Carter?
2: The thing with Nick was a friend of mine that I signed a publishing deal with then went to work for Zomba Publishing which was part of Zomba Jive which is where Backstreet Mm -hmm. Boys were on Jive so there was a connection there and he said, you know, Nick Carter's coming to do a solo album. You know, I could probably get you a session with him. Would, would you like to do it? So I said, yeah, definitely. You know, maybe I'll get I'll ask Gary if he wants to do it. It was a big deal at the time. In fact, yeah. you know, his his solo album and Justin Timberlake's first solo album yeah. came out pretty much within a month or so of each right. other. And at, right. at the time, it was kind of, Who's going to win the battle? Yeah. Well, clearly Justin won by yeah. some margin, but you know it was it was a huge deal. So um, I can imagine Nick had a actually had an English A and R guy based in New York, um, a guy called Steve Lunt, L U N T. He was a great A and R guy. He he did sort of Britney Spears and stuff like that, and we got on well with Steve.
1: That's got to be feel good to you. I mean. So we'll get we'll get kind of more into this in detail a little bit in a little bit here, but just as anecdotally, I was I don't actually, I think he's on Dan- Dancing with the Stars. I don't actually watch right. that show, but I was at the gym yeah. the other night on the treadmill and it was on, and and I thought, oh, he must be on that. So anyway, and and I was listening to your songs from that album. You wrote "My Confession." I didn't follow his yeah. solo career or anything like yeah. that, but I really like that song a lot.
3: With your head, every time I look around, no somewhere else instead, I wanna ask you why, but. Every- I was listening to
1: some of the other stuff. We'll just get into your songwriting now and go back to King Gang in yeah. a minute. But I was listening to the Sheena Easton song and the Tina uh-huh. Turner song and the Rolling Gift song. Yeah. you got funk. You know what I mean? You've got some soul <laughs> to you. All these songs. I'm noticing that there's a there's a commonality among all these songs. When I listened to them at one time, knowing that you wrote them, they all are like, it's like, yeah, this sounds just like something, and I don't know you or anything, but and I only know two Kangang Gang albums, but it's like, yeah, yeah, this all sounds like a piece. This must be Martin's style. Is this kind of funkier, R&B, poppy, you know, upbeat songs yeah. for people? Is that, yeah. is that kind of your hallmark? How did you even get into writing songs for other people? And then, you know, what what's influencing you? Is it still going back to Steely Dan, or is it, what's going on?
2: Uh-huh. Well, it can, I mean, it can be all sorts of things. And of course, to manage to make any sort of a decent living as a as a as a, as a songwriter, I guess you have to be, um, you know, you have to, you, your skill set needs to be fairly fairly wide. But you know, the songs that you've mentioned, I mean, interestingly, certainly the the, the Sheena Easton song, "Time Bomb." first song I'd ever had cut by anybody oh really other than myself and and that was written with David Frank who used to be in the system yes
1: I want to ask you about David Frank actually so so you work with him and and with on Sheena Easton
2: right and that kind of came about through actually a journalist who became one of my best friends a a guy who used to work for NME he interviewed me a couple of times and we 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 became really close friends, and he was really good friends with Sheena. That's how she got to hear the song, and that sort of was some kind of a initial breakthrough in terms of, yeah. okay. hey, somebody other than me wants to sing right. one of my songs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's um, got to
1: feel good. And then, I mean, that kind of totally. snowballs into other people. Is that how you primarily make a living now as a songwriter for other people, or how do you pay your bills? so to
2: speak. Yeah, um, well, you know, I all that period, I had, well, I could break it down, sort of post cane Gang, you know, yeah. that was probably the most difficult period in terms of all sorts of things, but certainly in terms yeah. of, oh, where's my money gone? Yeah, I <laughs> um, I, you know, I probably went sort of three or four years with kind of no money and, you know, oh, so, oh okay. And then I signed a new publishing deal, somebody who was kind of had been a fan of the Kane gang and just at the point where I was out of a publishing deal they came forward and offered me a publishing deal and right. I signed that deal on the day of the Christmas party of of the publisher, it was Polygram Music hmm. and at the party I was introduced to an A&R guy the A&R guy had a band called the Lighthouse Family which I know doesn't mean much in US terms but well, but basically they sold about 10 million albums, so they oh, kind of ended man. up being pretty. pretty but I, so I was introduced to the A and R guy, and he said, "Hey, I've got a have got this band uh, up in Newcastle, which is where I was living at the time. He'd always liked my stuff, and would you like to yeah. write with them?" So I went like two weeks later, went, wrote a song with them, which and the, this particular song was called "Lifted." love to be alone without
3: all the ache and pain and the April showers. But it ain't long before I long for you like a ray of hope coming through the blue. When it all gets darker then, the whole thing falls apart I guess. It doesn't really matter about the rain, cause we'll get through it anyway we could be lifted 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 We could be lifted From the shadow Lifted Oh we could be Lifted
2: off the day Lifted it the Which basically became the song that Broken. It was, really, it was a huge. Wow. Hit. You know that, That's gonna
1: feel amazing, that, right? A couple years of nothing. you
2: uh, uh, Your amazing funds dry mix- up,
1: and then you get this deal, and within a couple of weeks, you write the song that breaks a huge band. Maybe not in the states, but suddenly you're back on top again, kind of, right?
2: It was pretty good. That. I mean, the, that that first album was in the UK. It was. Something like six times platinum. Certainly that song remains to this day, actually. It's been the most in terms of income. You know, hundreds of thousands of pounds that song was worth because it got to wow. six uh, for I think it had about... We had a run of about five years where it was actually on an aspirin ad for Bayer oh, in, really? in the States and in Germany. So it was just I'll the kind of, you know, the gift that Kevin <laughs> sure
1: man that's amazing so So, i mean let me ask you kind of a pointed question then: does that song alone could you live off basically that
2: song alone no it did make a lot of money but in itself it's certainly not enough to sustain me in the 20 years or something since it was was released but But, you um, did well for a while on that right well i did i did well for a while on that okay From, from a songwriting point of view actually the problem was it maybe wasn't that transferable to other to a lot of other acts. There weren't a lot of other lighthouse families about kind of thing, you know. It sort it of wasn't hey, you will get the guy who did that. Probably from a as a songwriter I didn't benefit as much as I would have if, if I'd okay. just written a mainstream normal mm-hmm. pop hit. But yeah, I mean i it yeah, it, it I, I was I, I was doing well for a few years. But sure. Can I
1: then' I a, kind of a dumb question, actually? No, no. no. And this is just somebody from an outsider's perspective. I, I hear that, you know, I, I've talked to 35, 40 people for this podcast so far, and publishing mm-hmm. deals, that term comes up a lot. To a layman mm-hmm. like me, explain what that means. Does that mean that you become like a salaried employee for a record label and you're in a stable of writers and you'll be asked to, or assigned to write for certain people? Or is it on a case-by-case basis where you... I'm trying to understand the business a little bit better. So is it that you you don't make any money unless you write somebody? Or how does it work?
2: If you sign a publishing deal, that would normally involve the publisher paying you some kind of advance. The advance would be based on what your apparent prospects were at the time. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, your market rate can go, you know... Probably the Mm. smallest publishing deal I'd sign might be. I mean, people will now sign. They might sign a publishing deal for five thousand pounds or ten thousand pounds. Yeah. But if you're doing well, I mean, you know, the last publishing deal I I signed three and a bit years ago. You know, then then you were talking about hundreds of thousands of pounds as being the advance. Okay. So they advance you that, and then you recoup out of your royalties. And if obviously you recoup, then you continue to be be yeah, paid right, right. beyond that. So they, they advance take a you
1: hundred yeah, they advance you hundred thousand yeah. pounds, we'll say, and that's your money until you make that back. And when the label yeah. makes back the hundred pounds, anything on yeah. top of that is like a commission and that is like that's where the royalties kick in and you can make more money off of that and, then and they get would more make money. more money. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yes. Yeah exactly. and then when it's yeah.
1: maybe time to re up on your publishing contract Based on the success yeah. you had during the last contract, your fee might go up a little bit, right?
2: Yeah, I mean at the end of the contract, you're then you know they will either offer you a new one or they okay. will. Uh, I mean they'll have option periods where at any point they could say, "Okay, we don't want to pick up that option; it's too expensive for yeah. us." So yeah. uh, buy or right. how about we pay you less or whatever, you know? But okay. if sometimes you get. A, a, a lovely bit of timing where you, you come out of a publishing deal just at the point where things are going really well and then you're on the free market and it's yeah. kind of, hey, who wants me? I'm doing great. It's very much a roller coaster.
1: <laughs> it sounds like it. So that advance that, again, we're just saying 100000 it could be anything, but whatever your advance is, that's got to last you, right? That's it for until uh, he, you start yeah, capitalizing? I mean, there's no salary, right? You don't make a paycheck no salary, every two no. weeks or a month no, or whatever. No. You get it all up front,
2: no. okay. But there, there is, I mean, there is an, an, another income source in that. This is kind of hard to explain, but people like, well, in this country, PRS or in the U.S., ASCAP, BMI, mm-hmm. they collect performance royalties. So mm-hmm. royalties for if you're played on the radio, et cetera. So even if I'm a million pounds in the hole to my publisher, if I've had a song that's getting played on the radio and they collect royalties for that song, mm. they pay 50% of the money that they've collected. They pay 50% of that directly to me, mm-hmm. bypassing the publisher entirely, and give the other 50% to the publisher, which will go towards recouping or... Okay. You know, ...or okay. if you are. So, so actually, it's quite... the Uh, a good situation that you can be massively unrecouped, but you will still have another income stream from performance royalties as well.
1: Okay, okay.
2: So sometimes that can work well.
1: Okay, and then when you are signed to, in this case, we'll say Polygram, is Polygram Mm -hmm. assigning you to write with artists, or are you expected to go out and find your own people to collaborate with?
2: Before you sign, they they tell you generally, we'll get you these amazing sessions and we'll get you cuts on all these records. Then the the reality of it is, is that you're often kind of on your own. Yeah. It's, you know, a lot of the work is, I mean, they will do some stuff at the margins and there are, you know, some publishers are better than others, but a lot of it is being able to use your own contacts and yeah. connections. Okay. I mean, that that's... That's kind of what, you know, well, I'd like to think possibly because I'm halfway good at writing yeah. songs, but also, you know, probably, I mean, easily my most successful period has been the last sort of seven or eight years. Mm. And I guess to some extent, you, it, it, some of that's uh, coming to fruition of years of having contacts with people yeah. and okay. eventually. Things align where, yeah, you know, the manager of the act and the and the A and R guy was the guy that you had a hit with the Lighthouse Family, and then mm-hmm. they thought put you together with him, you know, et cetera, and yeah. kind of goes, okay. okay. Now, for once, something is working out. Whereas yeah. the other ninety something percent of the time, as a songwriter, things are going wrong and falling apart. (laughs) Yeah, sounds like it, right?
1: I mean, it's not always that you're going to get that much success. So when they're hiring you with a publishing deal, it's not just for your talent. It's also a little bit maybe for your Rolodex, right? For your contacts. Yes,
2: to some extent. Okay,
1: got it. Now, and then, what were you going to say?
2: I was going to say definitely the last deal I signed, one of the attractions was, I think, Oh well, we don't really have to help him that much, you know. He can he can figure these things out because he's mm. he knows all these people anyway, so yeah. um, okay. it'll be quite self sufficient in that sense. Good,
1: okay. And then, like, let's say I don't know, I could be way off, but let's say you sign a two year contract. How many balls are you juggling at one time? Are you working with ten different artists on ten different songs all the time, or are you kind of waiting for the phone to ring for one thing? Are you going all in no, ge- on one or two projects? How does that work?
2: No, generally speaking, most people who are who are working as you know professional songwriters, they're pretty much writing every day. It depends if if you're a producer-stroke songwriter where you have to get the demos together. You'll, you'll I guess you'll, you, you know, you might be writing a few days and then you know take a couple of days to produce the demos, that kind of thing. If you're working at even an average level, I'd say, you know, there's plenty of sessions to be done. There's there's lots of people who want to write songs. There's lots of people Mm. looking for collaborations. Whatever those statistics are where broad labels, you know, sign 100 acts and five of them become successful. Obviously, you know, the other 93 who are not successful need songs as well just to... Allow them to fail.
1: <laughs> sure, yeah, that's a good point. So, I hadn't thought of that. You're right.
2: I mean, I, I, I was just, well, I was just looking in my diary about a, a, a session I've got coming up. This particular singer, who last time I worked with, and she's great. I really, really like her, and she's already had quite a big hit here. And she said, "I said, so how many, how many songs have you, have you, have you written now?" She said, "Oh, uh, it must be about, i would reckon about." Hundred and sixty. So, so there, and that was that was about three months ago. So, you know, I've oh, wow. written another twenty since then, and right, so there's a right. uh, hundred and sixty, hundred and sixty songs that are, are not going to be on a record. Yeah, and right. Maybe, They're just floating you know, around out there. Yeah. So, I mean, that yeah. I guess that's unusual, but you know, even a guy like. Uh, written quite a few and had songs with a guy called James Morrison I've
3: been twisting and turning In a space that's too small I've been drawing the line And watching it fall You've been closing me in the space in my heart
2: I mean, he's pretty established. You know, his first album was four times platinum. Mm-hmm. But even he will for, you know, I don't know how many he wrote for this album, but definitely I remember saying for the last album, he'd, he'd written 60 songs. Yeah. you know, right. you got to so keep you the feel, you, full, right? You've got, yeah. So, you know, if you could figure out the days that were worthwhile, you could probably work for about three weeks of the year and and mm. if you knew which are the ones that are going to be worthwhile <laughs> and that would be fine yeah. Take the rest of the year off wow but, amazing uh, unfortunately you've got even this is even people who are on a hot streak you know yeah, you're, yeah. Hot and you're in demand way you know Way more than half of what you do is, is turns out to be a complete and utter waste of time. But you yeah, can't let can be in your mind, obviously, when you right. sat there on a on a Monday morning thinking, "Right, what are we gonna do today?" Yeah. Right.
1: <laughs> oh man, I think that's true mm. for Mondays for anyone who has to go to a job on Monday. Mm. Right?
2: Oh boy, here we go. Yeah.
3: What now? I yeah. did
2: say to a, a, an ex-writing partner, a, a guy called Ben Barson, who We worked together for about four years, and we were quite hot when we got together. I'd written this lifted song, he'd had a couple of massive hits with a singer called Gabrielle. If you've looked up things, like you've mentioned, probably he's a co-writer on the Roland Gift song. He's also a co-writer on the Tina Turner song.
3: Your fear. Whatever life throws at you, your friend is here, here. right by your side. And love leaves you cold, lies out in told I will be there with my open arms, hurting inside. Please don't have the pain, I will be
2: there with my friends. And the team is turning Came a success uh, about three years after we'd stopped writing together, just completely out of the blue. But, you know, we had such bad luck when we were writing together, everything we seemed to touch, you know, the A&R guy would get sacked or the, the female artist would get pregnant or something, you know, it would just be, what? But anyway, we got a little gift at the end, as uh, yeah. years later. Oh, Tina Turner's done it. Well, I, I I remember a conversation with him towards the end, and I, I said, Ben, if you can't take gut-wrenching disappointment on a daily basis, do something other than songwriting, because that's, that's the gig.
1: That is true. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. Well, all the more, I mean, how lucky are you then that you've had some success and that you're able to string together a career doing this, right? When it's tough and oh, not totally, everybody yeah. can do it.
2: I always think I am lucky. Indeed, these last sort of seven, eight years a particularly good living out of uh, being a, a songwriter. And I know that there's people, you know, more talented than me than that, that never even got a chance at it. Yeah. But somehow, you know, some combination of being half decent at it right. and also having some sense of how to interact with people. I mean, that's kind of quite an important aspect. Yeah.
1: Yeah, totally. slow, Seems like it. People so, want to work um, with you, it sounds like. So do you ever look yeah, back I mean, at the cane... G- oh, go ahead. No,
2: please. So no, no, I was just going to say, I mean, I can say, you know, feel like the guy who manages James Morrison used to be my product manager when I was in the Kane gang. So really? had that 30 years of kind of yeah thinking he's okay. David Frank, you said, you know, I did that thing with him for, for uh, Sheena, you know, 25, uh-huh. whatever, years later, we're, we're still friends. Even the guy that I write with most of all now, my friend is called Adam Argyle, who's just in his 30s, but I've actually known him since he was 17 because we,
1: oh, wow.
2: myself and Gary Clark started writing with him when he was an artist when he was 17. It's a good sign, I think, if you can sustain those kind of relationships yeah, over, sounds like it. Yeah. over a long period of time.
1: You ever and you just gotta on...
2: keep finding fresh blood as well, yeah, of course. right, yeah
1: <laughs> well, and yeah, so it, and it's on you to be on the lookout for some of that, I guess, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. When you look back on the Kane gang, do you ever miss the days of being the front man of a band and that's you know having your own hits sung by you and written by you and stuff like that, or are you pretty content where you are now
2: that n- never plays a part for me, I never think. Oh, let me be at the front and singing. I I don't think I really... I mean, maybe it's one of the things that lies at the root of perhaps why we weren't more successful, but I never had that sort of desperate... Now, I'm about to do something. This is the only time you'll hear me compare myself to Bill Withers, but there is in that still Bill documentary, I don't know if you've ever seen it. I have seen it. There's a bit where he says, gee, I wish I just had that show-off gene. To a lesser extent, I, I, I'm a bit like that. I'm really, if, I'm not that I'm particularly shy, as you can probably tell by, uh-huh. you know, our interaction now, but I never really, you know, people will say, I've got kids and that the school thing, they'll say, oh, you know, Martin, you know, what about singing a song, you know, can we get you? Uh-huh. And I think, no, I really
1: <laughs> don't want to do it. <laughs> So there probably won't be Uh, a Cane Gang reunion anytime soon.
2: A year ago, we actually did, and this was the first time for, you know, 25, 30 years. Uh We got together on the stage and did four songs because it was a kind of school reunion thing. And I just thought, well, I really don't want to do it, but this seems like a a nice, you know, nostalgia fest sort of thing.
1: Don't so you guys did ever that. get invited to play like rewind festivals and stuff like that?
2: If you ask Dave from the band, I mean he would uh, he would jump at the chance. Me, I, I'd like no. Particularly something like that. In the back of my mind, occasionally I think, you know what, if I was really kind of if I had a lot of time on my hands and uh-huh. or I wanted to devote I thing, some I kind of there's a little thought that goes Maybe I wouldn't mind sort of writing some new stuff for for me, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like Dave actually sent me a track about uh, six weeks ago. I've been, um, you know, he's kind of he would like to to do more like Get that, but huh. I definitely wouldn't do the nostalgic looking back kind of thing. It's it's not me. I just think I've got. I've got stuff I want to do, man. I don't yeah. want to kind of look. And, that, and looking back uh, is not one of them. Interesting.
1: And, and looking back
2: is 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 not one of them. And I, a few people have been talking to us, not about the cane gang, but, you know, somebody was had me talking in the CAF that I go to the other day, saying about, you know, bands that come on and then they you go and see them and they don't play the famous song and all the rest yeah. of it. I, I felt quite, I, I really understand that. As a fan... But as a as an artist, um You just yeah. don't feel like it.
1: You're just not feeling it anymore. Uh, now, so let, let me ask you this. Now, again, being from the States, I don't even know. Did you guys tour the States back in the day? Did you – what were the highlights? I mean, what, how big did it get, you know? I don't really know. You didn't play uh, in the
2: States? Yeah, we didn't play in the States, despite us having that uh, creep into the – 30 or whatever it was, Motor Tower, and uh, our number one dance hit, uh, don't look any further. But it almost happened, but it didn't. And part of that... In fact, even here, John, we only, we only played a handful of gigs in the UK. There was a couple of occasions when there would be, let's, you know, Record company. It, was, it would be. It was an expensive thing to do because we yeah. needed. We felt as though we needed quite a big band. You know, there was only the three of us, so there was. You know, it, to, the tour support was quite would would have been quite expensive, and we. I guess we weren't big enough to be. You know, pulling in the fees yeah. that it would be self-financing. Yeah, sure. So, I, I'd have to be honest and say I was probably the one dragging my feet the most. Going, oh really? In fact, I remember this having this conversation in a, a hotel in Munich, I think it was, uh, where we'd gone to do a promo thing. And we, Tears for Fears, were they all on the sort of same international label. Mm-hmm. And we ended up having drinks with them and this was prior to them having their massive hit, which is not completely dissimilar to uh, in feel to Mortortone, actually, because sure, it's got that sure. same twelve-eight sort of feel. Yeah, um, yeah. But this was prior to that. And we were having this conversation about the States and what have you got to do. And Keith, who was our manager is going, the only way you'll go to the States, you've just got to have, you just got to go then, you know, play live, play live, play live and months mm-hmm. on end, months, gigs, gigs, gigs. And that's, and I was saying, no, Keith, it's not, you know, it's, it's about the songs as well. You've really got to have the songs. Mm-hmm. And the two guys from Tees for Fears were kind of agreeing with me. And then, lo and behold, six months later or something, they really did break mm-hmm. the states and everything, just through the, yeah. the power of that that one yep. song, you know. That yeah. sort of everybody massive. wants to rule the world. Yeah. And,
1: but then, by the same token, they sort of imploded shortly after that under the same circumstances, I think. I've, I mean, Kurt uh, Kurt yeah. and Roland not getting along because they probably had differing views like you did about wanting to tour and how big are we going to do this and how, yeah. you know, can't we just release music? And so, yeah, I mean, yeah. they... As it evidence shows, they had the same conflict going on. I just wanted yeah. to ask you, when you look back on your career, what is the... Because it sounds like you never really lived the full-on rock star life. So what is your... Best memory, and then what is your biggest regret? When and the best memory can be the first time you wrote a song you liked, or you met a hero, or someone paid you a compliment, or you heard it on the radio. What what's that best, most delicious memory that you just can't believe happened to you? And then what would be your uh, biggest regret?
2: Well, no, I think you've triggered. I I'd I find that really difficult to bring to mind, but something you said just triggered it off in my mind that there was we did. A, a cover on our first album of a staple singer's song called Respect 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 Yourself. Um, a magazine upstairs with an interview with Mavis Staples where she says how much she likes the Kane Gangs version really? of Respect yourself. Oh, So I would carry that little yes. memory to the grave. <laughs> yep. Because so she's is one amazing. of my favorite singers of all time. It's going well. Yep. Eh, if it's good enough for Mavis, maybe yep, I would do
1: that. Oh, that's
2: great. Good for you. I love that. Yeah. Cool. So, um, do you have any am I, regrets? I, am, I allow, am I allowed the cliche of not having any real regrets? <laughs> sure, yeah, of course. And yeah, it sounds I, that I, way. I, I, I mean, I, I, you've done what you wanted
1: and you've been
2: successful at it. Yeah, I mean, I'm just really, really lucky to have made a living out of what I love doing. You know, the bit about music, the thing that I've always really enjoyed is kind of going in and coming out at the end of the day or end the two days or something, and you've got this song that never existed before, and you yeah. made something new, and it's and it's it's exciting, you know, and you never know. Yeah. I still think I've probably got my best songs still to be written, you know. I don't, I don't think. Yeah. But I mean, that, I suppose that's part of the mindset that I said before, you know, and just kind of like looking forward. This year, actually, I've I've done about half as much songwriting as normal because I manage a band. The interesting thing is now, when you're asking me about being the front man and, you know, and kind of Uh having all this, and this particular band, they're very much a live band. I mean, they will be playing, you know, next year, they're going to be playing 200 gigs. Who are they? Do we know know them? You wouldn't know them yet. If you Google them, if you look on YouTube, you can see some Uh videos. They're kind of a punk, almost like a punk rock kind of band. Wow. And they're called Vant V A N T.
3: How do you find her? Like a gunshot in a parking lot. No one heard, no one saw. I did nothing wrong, nothing wrong. I really wish I did something. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, cause your heart's not in it. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, cause your heart's not in it.
2: parking lot no one to here. we're going to come and play some shows in the US next year so in some ways I will have a belated uh, a little vicarious um, yeah
1: wow okay
2: live cool. touring experience <laughs> yeah yeah
1: wow that's uh, going to be a new but,
2: exciting venture for you i see that as going oh, well that'll be kind of fun you know yeah can, so you know this year we we started to play fest- i hate festivals, by the way, but anyway, we started to play festivals in reading and Leeds and things like that so uh, we're gonna go and do south by south west probably in in march oh, and um wow so I, i'm i'm Keep gonna look out for vant yeah. yeah they're okay. they're pretty special i I think they're gonna do well
1: good, oh, that's great, good for you. Look, i gotta, go, I got to let you go, but I just want you to know that no, you no have written some music that means a lot to me. I especially like Motortown, but I like a lot of other stuff, too. And thank you so much for talking to me, because I've been a fan of yours since that night in 1987 when I saw the Motortown video on TV while I was doing something else, and it stopped me in my tracks mm-hmm. to watch. And I've just had a fascination with who you are and where your sound was coming from ever since. So
2: thank you oh, so much. Your stuff means a lot. And who'd have thought
1: we'd have we'd have
0: been having this conversation all the time? I know. There you have it, Martin Brammer. What an interesting life that must be. To uh, make a living, and in his case a, a good living, writing songs for people. Pretty kind of fascinating stuff. I was really glad that he shed a lot of light too on some of the behind the scenes business type stuff. Anyway, great guy. I'm really glad he talked to me. Huge thanks, as always, to Jan Mokiewicz for producing this podcast. We're so grateful for him. Let's get some business out of the way. Find us on iTunes. Please leave a review. I don't personally care if it's a good or a bad review. I think good reviews are more helpful in terms of helping people search and find the podcast. So if you like us, please let us know. I'd love it. And subscribe to the podcast. You can send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. A couple people sent in some listener requests this week. I'm starting to work on those. Thanks for that guys. Find us on Twitter at the hustle pod. You can find us on Facebook, like our page, stay in communication with us that way. I send out a lot of information that relates to previous guests of the podcast, kind of to keep them out there in the public eye and also find our playlist on YouTube. Just type in the hustle podcast playlist and subscribe. I put up videos of the guests that we're talking to to kind of enhance the experience, give you some idea of what they're really like, what they look like, sound like, what they may have sounded like live, that kind of a thing. Anyway, Happy New Year to everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you all next week.